Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast. The number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff. No more vanity metrics. Live from India. Made for the world. Hello and welcome to yet another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. This is me, your host, Yagneshwar and Ganesh. So in today's episode, we are going to be discussing why transitioning from founder-led growth to sales that often fails. And to discuss that, today we have with us David Ledgerwood, popularly known as Ledge, who is the managing partner at Add10. Yes, if you are looking to add another zero or two to your revenue, he is your guy. And Lech has closed over 35 million in sales and uh, has deep rooted expertise in selling software. He has helped several companies grow into mid seven figures and he has also been the host for the 200 plus episodes of the Frontier podcast by Gun.io. So without further ado, Lech, welcome to the show. How are you? It's good to be here. I am doing awesome. Right. I'm, I'm so happy to have you today with us here. Let's jump right in. You know, pretty much every company that starts its sales, they start being founder-led. Founders have to sell. There are no two ways about it. So let's break the basics down first. What, what in your view is the biggest difference in the way a founder goes about selling and how a VP of sales goes about it? You know, I have been the founder seller, so I totally appreciate this, how this goes. And I think every founder who has to sell goes through these same types of things. I mean, look, you're just trying to make revenue. You know, you'll almost take pretty much anybody that can write a check. You probably haven't niched down enough. And, you know, at that early stage, that's okay. You know, we're just trying to keep the company going. You got to pay all the bills. You got to take all the calls. You probably aren't spending a lot of time writing down and thinking about your sales program. Your CRM disciplines and hygiene are probably pretty bad. You know, it's just a question of priorities at that point, right? You can't do all the things when you're the founder. So we totally get that. Uh, but it's it's really like there's no real process or systems or revenue program being developed, you know, at that point. So, I mean, that's, that's what a founder is doing. You know, we're really going to look for that founder, at least in the kind of clients we want to work with, who have taken the business into nice, comfortable, maybe quarter million dollars a year, half million dollars a year of revenue, because that really shows that you reached product market fit, you can deliver, uh, you can, you know, turn over some clients and, and do a good job, get some good testimonials. So, you know, we don't work with a lot of people that are pre-validation stage, pre-revenue, go to market. It's just not our our kind of thing. So we're always looking for those founders that, that really have done that and have gotten to the point where they're plateauing in that mid six-figure kind of range on an annualized basis. Right, right. That makes sense, you know, 100%. In fact, um, in my observation, when a founder sells, it almost begins with uh, them tapping into their established networks and relationships. And what it means is that founders already know the context of, um, you know, why they are selling to a particular prospect, their situation, etc. But as the company grows and scales, you know, there needs to be a process and there needs to be a set of people specializing in specific roles. So, you know, uh, talk about this, legend. why is sales not amongst those functions that are generally easy to scale. Yeah, you're totally right about that. You know, the the idea that your early revenue comes from 
you know, your friends or warm referrals or your network, maybe some partner relationships. That's almost always what's, what's going to happen, particularly with us. We work with a lot of services companies. So yeah, absolutely. 10,000% right on that. Uh, you know, scaling sales, I think it's difficult because like I said, at the beginning, most firms, especially from a startup kind of basis, they really aren't thinking about scaling the operations of sales. You know, so people, uh, most of us, right, we have this idea that sales is just this one magic human that somehow gets on calls and starts making deals. But you don't really think about all the operations that, that goes into that. You know, start to finish, you're going to talk about working with 15 different tools that are from your CRM to your signatures and writing contracts and making proposals. And how do you turn that into a system, you know, so that you make the person who's actually on the call? Yeah, they're the star. You know, uh, we're lucky in the sales seat. You know, we get to kind of just do all the fun stuff and just talk to people and make deals. But man, 80% of the work is behind the scenes. And so if you don't have that 80%, you can quickly imagine why things don't scale. If you were to just think that operations in your business was just somebody on a phone call, you know, making stuff happen, that would be absurd. But that's what we think about sales, right? Like, why don't we think of sales as, as really about revenue operations? And I, I think there's a lot more work in that space. Now we just call it sales ops. Now we call it revenue ops. But really, I mean, think about it. Like, it's absurd to think that somehow we're just going to go from a founder-based selling regime to hire some other magical human who is now your closer and you call them VP of sales and there's no program, no support, no operations behind them. And, and somehow you're going to scale that, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense, but there's this mythology of the closer that seems to uh, have been there. Not unlike the mythology of the the founder being able to do all the things it's, it's just kind of not like that for businesses. So of course it won't scale unless you have an actual operating program in place. So, that's that's a lot of our focus, right? That that actually makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, personally, I've been a startup guy, and this is something that I've seen over and over in my career. Uh, sometimes founders are uh, too late in uh, bringing in a sales leader. I recollect so many occasions where the founder could have recruited a VP of sales instead of seeing the revenue flatten out and decline over like two to three quarters. So according to you, you know, since you just spoke about the process, like what's the right time to get a sales leader on board? Or maybe, you know, what are some of the cues that you can pick up and say, yes, now is the time to bring in a closer? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, you know, there's a couple of things there. You will sense this as a founder who is doing the sales or, you know, it really who maybe who doesn't even want to be doing the sales, you know? So the first question is just to say, do I like the seat that I'm in? You know, if, if I don't, if if I'm a reluctant founder in the sales seat and I'd really rather be, you know, sort of an operator or maybe a marketer, those are the people that you kind of just go like, all right, I never wanted to sell in the first place. I just have to. So you should recognize that feeling in your own founder journey. You know, it gets to the point that you're doing all the things. Well, which thing do you not like? If you don't like selling and you don't think you're particularly good at it, that's one thing to think about. Well, great. I should bring in another player, you know, at, at that point. Another thing that I see is way too many companies think when they get to that point, there's one of two paths that they take, right? The first one is, well, I can't afford a legit salesperson, but I need somebody full-time on the phones working it. You know, we need a hunter. So they go hire, you know, uh, a junior sort of SDR type and they go, yeah, here, you know, sell my company. But 
of course, that person has no program to work from. There's no playbooks because the founder didn't do any of that work. You know, the founder just has it all in their head. So you're immediately setting that person up to just make cold calls and fail. So that's one problem. The, the other version is, all right, you know, we're ready. We, have, we want a VP of sales. You know, we have, I don't know, 400 grand of revenue a year. You know, we're ready. But then they find out, oh, wow, you know, a VP of sales is going to cost me like a quarter million dollars fully loaded. That's almost all the revenue. Oh, but wait, don't worry. You know, he or she has a great Rolodex. They have so many contacts. They're going to be able to make us sales right away. You know, and guess what happens? They come on. There's no program in place. They don't think they're hunters. They really think they're VP of sales. They're, you know, managers. So they want to build a strategy and, you know, all the stuff, but they're not working the phones either. You know, they're not doing any hunting. That's not what they want to do. In a sense, they probably have closing chops. They also have sales management chops because they're an experienced VP of sales. They're also not going to move the needle. All their network contacts, that doesn't work. You know, the closer with the Rolodex is, is such a scam. I don't believe it. Every time I've seen somebody ever try to (laughs) hire from that seat, it's like total crap. So don't do it. So, okay. There you have two fail paths, right? As a, as a founder. And I looked at that having been sort of in the midst of trying to figure out how to make sales for startups for, for quite a long time. And I started to wonder, look, you can, you can hire sort of, um, you know, a part-time or a fractional CFO or COO or, you know, CMO, like, why can't we do fractional VP of sales? And, and people kept saying, you know, that's impossible. That'll never work. You're not close enough to it. You don't understand the product, uh, you know, on and on so many excuses. And there's endless sales consultants and coaches who are going to teach the founder how to build the system and strategically work out your positioning and, you know, all the things, but nobody closes any money. And so, you know, I've, I've watched startup after startup drop like $100,000 into coaching and consulting, completely missing the point that that founder didn't want to be on the phone working it in the first place. They don't ever want to sell. They want somebody else to do it, but they can't afford the full-time person who can legitimately build that program and do it. So I said, you know, let's start that thing. That makes sense to me. So how do you do that on a fractional basis? And that's that's the essence of our our company. We actually close you sales and money. We are closers as a service and we build your whole revenue division, you know, rev ops, that's the game. And I don't know why, but there's not a lot of people that do that. In fact, if you are somebody who does that and you're listening, we want to talk to you because people keep telling us that what we do is impossible and yet we keep doing it. So, you know, I would like to have some friends in the industry who actually are closers as a service as well. I absolutely love the story because, you know, uh, even in the world of revenue marketing, one of the reasons why not a lot of people take it up is because nobody wants to really own up a revenue number and say that I can bring in so much for you. Love that story. And to add to that, you know, in my observation, uh, typically a founder-led sales kind of stops scaling around this, um, you know, 1 million to 2 million ARR, like if you are a SaaS company. Mm -hmm. And so as you're getting closer to that ballpark, you know, in my view, you need to have a VP of sales or at least start outsourcing to someone. The impact that you made at gun.io speaks volumes to support that viewpoint. But taking it purely from a growth strategy standpoint, I think the transition is also not easy when you move from being founder-led to sales-led. So when you do that move, you know, uh, when a company goes from being founder-driven company to becoming completely sales-driven, what are some of the things that can really go wrong as part of the transition? You know, what should you be mindful of? Absolutely. So that that interesting thing you said, I'll go back real quick to the dollar amount of when you should think about doing 
this stuff from a sales uh, standpoint uh, for SaaS, right? If you're working primarily with a SaaS type of company, you're talking about a totally different level of, of money uh, from the gross margin standpoint. So you're absolutely right at that point. My story picks up at the about a half million kind of mark for a services business, services and technology business. For a SaaS business, you're probably right. You want to go up in that two million kind of mark before you even think about not having founder-led sales. Because if you can't do it up to that point, uh, that's the same point between a services and a SaaS business. And that's where you'll start having the weird symptoms. If you can't get that far by yourself, you're in deep trouble because you probably don't have product market fit. So there's that. Then a lot of times you'll see this happen where it's like, hey, cool, let's get salespeople now, but we haven't built any of the infrastructure that would support that. You know, you haven't written down your playbooks. You haven't even worked with your marketing team to actually have all the positioning and sales enablement stuff. You've been doing brute force you know, personality-based selling from the founder seat, you haven't prepared the program, you know, the actual operations necessary to bring on third-party salespeople. So, I mean, every time we start with a client, we're really spending a couple of months doing that kind of stuff. Now, we're trying to get on the phone as quick as possible, get on calls, start closing money. I mean, that makes everybody feel good, you know, but the reality is like it's an incredible amount of work to take over from that founder and get everything out of their brain. The whole business, the whole revenue operation, like pretty much lives only in their head. So it's not that switching between the humans is hard. It's the same thing as hiring any other place in your company. Like if you were the founder and you did all the project management and all the customer success and all the coding, even like any role there. Imagine you wrote nothing down. It's all in your head. Any role you wanted to hire that next person at would fall on its face for a while, right? It's the same thing. It's a nightmare, right? Right. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, let me also look at it from uh, another lens. One of the problems that I've seen for uh, sales-led organizations, like once they become completely sales-led, is also that it can quickly become a silo. The reason I say this is that a lot of times sales-led companies don't necessarily factor enough uh, like what how they contribute to customer success or where they add to the flywheel in terms of the product or the overall flywheel of the business so how do you ensure that sales is not operating in their own land for that matter Mark, you're so right and it just it simply has to be integrated so uh, one of the challenges is that people look at us and they say oh well you can't outsource sales and and it's it's true because if you thought of outsourcing as sort of like there's a, a pretend building full of people that go pretend, you know, be your sales organization and don't talk to anybody else. You'd be totally right. So, I mean, this is really about embedding with and that connection, the, the two key, really key connections have to be between sales and marketing and then sales and operations or customer success or delivery, whatever is happening after the close of the sale. Also with finance, people often, you know, kind of leave that one off. But the sales finance connection is really, really important. So when you're building this type of program, uh, we are absolutely adamant that we have to be involved with those connections. You can't allow it to silo like that. If, if you are, you're really setting yourself up for failure because your salespeople will get off, you know, and just start selling whatever they want. And maybe they're, they're going off rate card and then they just, you know, punt the butt. We see so much of this. They just punt it to finance and say, hey, good luck. Figure this out. You know, I wrote my own contract. I wrote my own SOW. 
uh, marketing is saying, wait, you didn't sell any of the things that we said we were supposed to sell from a product standpoint. Then the delivery people and customer success, they're getting angry. So, I mean, you got a major cultural problem if you don't integrate all of those roles. And it's the same thing, like if you were allowing your developers, again, to go off the ranch and just build whatever they want without talking to marketing, without talking to sales, like you're really talking about the full cultural integration of all your functions. Don't let any of them be siloed. You know, this, this is on you as an executive, as a founder, to not just abdicate the cultural and people elements of what you do. Everything needs to work together. You know who talks to the customer more than anybody? Sales. So how do we take that feedback from every single prospect call, the good ones, the bad ones, the, the ones we closed, the ones we didn't close? How do you feed all of that back to marketing? So our messaging, so our storytelling, so our positioning gets better. How do you feed it all the product so they can sort it out and say, wow, look at the feedback that we're getting. It turns out that thing that we were building, no one asks about that, right? So it's ongoing customer discovery. If you think about it as a learning loop, sales is the one that actually gets all the information from the marketplace. You can do all the marketing studies, surveys, NPS, all those things, but who's actually doing a ton of calls? with real humans that are actually thinking about buying and may, maybe do buy the thing. That's sales. And I, I feel like in so many organizations, that massive business intelligence source is falling off a cliff. And to, to, be, to be honest with it, it took us a while to really figure out a system by how do you mind that? Because it's, it's really just like, wow, okay, if I record you know, 20 hours of calls a week, it's a tremendous human load to go through it and figure out all the things that are being asked. We have done that. We figured it out, but I can understand why organizations let it fall off. It's literally the hardest stream of real-time information to process. You know, it's 20 hours of that stuff is like listening to 20 hours of podcasts and writing down everything somebody said. It's, it's rather cumbersome. We had to figure out how to build that ourselves. Right, right. Probably this is exactly why, uh, you know, Gong as a product is uh, way successful because they are just tapping into the intelligence that you just spoke about. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you mentioned, I absolutely loved, you know, you said uh, the, the finance part of things is equally important because uh, one of our previous guests, Daryl Trail, who's a CRO of uh, Vanilla Soft, he said that if there is one person that as, as a sales guy, as a VP of sales or CRO, you want to be best friends with the CFO and the finance team. So, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you spoke about it. And here's one thing, okay. I'm just going to slightly move away from this topic because when we were uh, preparing for our podcast today, we came across something that was super exciting to us. That is, you know, how you used podcasts for content-based networking and use that to close deals faster. That really fascinated me. You know, how did podcasts become a sales channel for you? Like, can you take us through the thought process and how you close deals using that? Yeah, absolutely. This is a funny thing. You know, uh, you know, when you come up with like a great idea, finally, after a whole long time of thinking about it and everybody goes, oh man, you're so smart. You know, how'd you come up with that? And you kind of go, well, <laughs> I just did it wrong a hundred times, you know? So everybody we tell this strategy kind of goes, oh, that's brilliant, you know, and we kind of go, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense. But I don't know why, but we got trained maybe in like, you know, podcast 1.0, content marketing, inbound marketing, you know, the HubSpot thing. We were just all taught like, hey, if you make a ton of content, you know, the rest of the world will just happen and leads will come pouring in the door. And, and I guess that's, that's where podcasting got, you know, sort of lumped into. But I'm a sales guy, right? I'm a relationships guy. And I looked at podcasting and I go, 
just like you and me right here. Like we didn't even know each other, right? Until we had a conversation. Well, what's a podcast except a conversation, an hour long time you get to spend with somebody who's the actual person you wanted to talk to and you get to have a personal conversation and it's authentic and you talk about real stuff. Isn't that the greatest sales call that you could ever imagine? Like I just described to you what you want to happen with your key prospects. So we just said, well, hey, why don't we invent podcast properties where it just so happens that the ideal guest is our ideal customer profile. So draw that Venn diagram and think about who are the people ultimately that we sell to, who's the best possible client, what do they care about being an expert about? Make a podcast that features that exact kind of expert and go ask them to be a guest. And so when we do outbound selling, you know this, you know, like we've got the whole playbook of reach out on LinkedIn, you know, do some messaging on LinkedIn Messenger, do some cold emails, do some cold calls, put that whole thing together. Great. What do you have? Okay, cool. A bunch of outreach that like maybe it really just ultimately acts like a, a CPM based marketing campaign. You're probably not going to get the person you wanted. If they respond at all, they're going to delegate you down the chain. Maybe you get to do your demo, you know, the whole thing. But like, you're not going to talk to the whale. You're not going to get the CEO, the CMO, the person you really wanted at that target customer. So sure, you should do it. It scales okay. You got to talk to 900 different people, get your message out there. I get it. Like outbound is a channel. But for whale hunting and executive to executive selling, it doesn't make any sense. So I want to talk to CEOs. I want to sell to the key people, the founder of that, that company. They're kind of a big deal. Like I can't get to them with an outbound sales message. They're tuned out. They're going to delegate it to somebody else. If I get the call at all, there's going to be a lot of low buy-in, but let's change that message from a sales outbound conversation from a sales message, from a pitch. And you just say, Yog, hey, you know, I, I read your stuff online and noticed you're an expert in this thing. I'm the host of a podcast called Blah, Blah, Blah. And I would love to have you on and interview you because I think we'd have a really great conversation. Now, you're vastly more likely to say, yeah, I love free PR. This is cool. I like being on podcasts. Like it checks so many different authority channels. So like every single point that makes something a valuable conversation that actually leads to a revenue conversation can be checked off if you do a podcast interview the right way. So that's what we started doing, forming revenue-based conversations as podcast interviews. And there's a whole strategy around how you brand that, how you pitch it, you know, what the interview, we built a whole interview framework about how to make that a non-bait and switch kind of experience. We're not having people on to sell them. We're having people on to develop a great relationship if there's a natural way then to evolve into, hey, you know, yeah, I really love what you guys do. I love what you said on that podcast. And this is after we stop recording, right? If it's cool with you, this isn't how I invited you, why I invited you here today. I don't want you to think I pitch all my guests. But, you know, if we could have a conversation about just let me show you what we do. You're the kind of person we like to work with on a cultural basis. And if not, no sweat. So it's a super low bar for that next conversation. But look at, you know, people do business with people they like, right? It's like standard influential psychology. So I just made you look like an expert. I just gave you value. 
before I asked you for value. I gave you free PR. You get to hang out with me. You already think I'm an authority figure. People buy from people they find authority with. There's social proof already because all the logos of other people that I've talked to. It checks literally every box of the uh, Cialdini, you know, sort of influence framework. And then you got it right there. You got your relationship. That's that's beautiful. You know, one of the core things that came out of or two major things that I observed in what you said is one, uh, when you invite somebody on a podcast, they are not going to give you fake emails. So you're going to get the actual people, the right people. So you can get to talk to them. And I love the whole whale hunting part because it's it's kind of the core ABM philosophy there. You're going to get the right people and engage them. So let me dig that a little more. You know, we tend to uh, hear this cliched line that goes around like, you know, it's always not about us. It's about them. Sometimes it makes me feel like, you know, it's kind of that break up line which goes like uh, it's not it's not about you honey it's me <laughs> but, <laughs> but but really speaking you know uh, how does one really make a podcast conversation or maybe even a sales conversation truly all about them without coming across as a bait and switch i love the bait and switch that you spoke about yeah uh, you know i i just think you have to have a, a genuine and a most most good sales people have this but i mean if you talk to genuine sales folks who really are just not you know, sort of uh, what they say, don't have commission breath. You know, I mean, it, if you're in this business to really help other people and really develop relationships and to be a genuine marketer, this is no different than being in a room with somebody and walking up and talking to them and, and asking them about their personal life. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Oh, you're a parent. That's neat. I have kids too. Um, you know, so it's just genuine because of the nature of how you frame out that discussion. Everybody likes to talk about who they are, what they do, how they got there, what's their origin story, where are you from? And so really like what, what you learn about in, in positive networking technique is like, who's the most interesting person in the room? Who's the person that everybody remembers? It's the person who asked all the questions and didn't talk about themselves. What better venue than to be interviewing somebody that is the whole thing that you want. And the neat part about this is when I ask you and I'm interviewing you and I ask you for your ideas about the future and where you're trying to take the company and what were some of the speed bumps you ran into and what were your lessons learned along the way, you're actually going to tell me because it's in an interview context. Now change that to the context of we're finishing up a sales call and I say, yeah, what are your visions for the next year? You know, where are you now versus where you want to be? What are your pain points? All of that stuff just falls flat. Like you immediately right. have your guard up, right? You're not going to tell me the real question. Why? Because exactly. you don't want to get pitched. You don't want to open the door to the sales call. In the context of an interview, all that stuff is organically coming out. Now, this is the part where it starts to get like, oh, wow, you know, you sort of you're playing chess and, you know, it can be bait and switchy and the whole thing. But again, it just it has to be genuine. Like, why are you doing this podcast? You, you, you know, there are reasons that you and me connecting could be good. You and other guests, you know, getting that influential stuff like all that's true. We're not ignoring that. There's a good reason to do this. We don't just all do it for fun. I'm just taking that one level further and saying, listen, what exactly do we want to do? Let's at least do all those things with the people that we actually want to have a conversation with in the first place. So it's just a targeting issue. Right, right. That makes, uh, you know, real good sense. 
Amazing. So now that we are inching towards the 30 minute mark, uh, you know, we are also entering towards that part of a game show that we call it the rapid fire. So are you up for it? Absolutely. Fire away. <laughs> so the concept here is that I'm going to ask you uh, five quick pointed questions. The questions may be short, may be pointed, but your answers need not be uh, you know short. You can go freeway the way you want. So here's question number one. Performance-based compensation. Are you for it or against it and why? I have evolved on this question. I used to be all about, I thought it was better to be on a flat, nice salary. And I just thought, you know, hey... And this was for me in this LC. I just said, look, look, just pay me a good salary. I'm going to work my butt off every day. I'm going to close as much as I can. I don't need a slice of it. I have evolved having talked to other salespeople. And it turns out that it is very motivating to have performance-based comp, particularly, you know, just give people enough salary, base level compensation to, you know, not be hurting at home, uh, you know, pay their bills, let not be stressed out. You don't want salespeople stressed out on the phone trying to make the next sale. So then you know, do some kind of like uncapped commission plan where it's just like, hey, you know, if you can crush it, you're going to make extra money. Uh, I also love team-based compensation if if it's suitable for the, you know, the situation. So maybe like, you know, sort of the, the rising tide lifts all boats. But um, right. I do like compensation from a performance basis now, presuming that it's culturally relevant, it's true to your values, uh, you know, it's just designed in a proper way to, you know, achieve the goals you want. Cause remember you are driving a highly leveraged uh, set of behaviors there. So if you're doing it wrong, it's going to end up in a much worse place for your company than if you're thoughtful about building that out and you actually listen to the people who are being paid, you know, to, to make sure that you're staying true to the values that you, you know, laid out in your culture. Right. That, that makes sense. All right. So here's uh, question number two. I believe one of your favorite quotes is, you know, if you want advice, ask for money. And if you want money, ask for advice. So do you mind explaining what that means? I picked that up from a venture capitalist that I worked with at one point. And it turns out, I guess that's a thing that comes out of the VC world. So people are, you know, startups are going to ask for investment. And uh, I, apparently that's just the thing that came out of there. I think it's perfect for sales as well. So, you know, it's a, it, if you want advice, ask somebody for money. So if you, if you go in with your hand out, they're going to go like, hey, you're, you know, you're kind of off base with that. Let me tell you how you could have better handled this situation. Or, you know, it's just anybody that is asking for money, quite literally, is probably going to get more advice than the money. But if I go in and I say, hey, you know, like, I really admire you. Uh, I think you'd have good feedback for our business. Now, I happen to know that's actually a person with money, you know, sales, investment, whatever. Money is money. You know, we have to finance our business. If I ask them for their advice, if I endear them as an expert, it's really not that different than what we talked about with, you know, doing the podcast interviewing. So if you treat somebody as an expert and you get their feedback and they like you because of the psychological triggers of that, you're vastly more likely to actually get some money out of the, the situation. So it's, it's quite literal from a sales context. If you can find a way to treat your potential customer like an expert first, they are more likely to give you money later. Right, right. I absolutely love that. Um, all right. So here's uh, question number three. Is sales-led growth strategy helpful only for services with long sales cycles? Or is that a myth that you would like to bust now? I don't work with a lot of straight 
SaaS on that. I know product-led marketing, it makes a lot of sense in the context that the major UX sort of or, you know, customer touch points are happening through the product. And in fact, it can be engaged that way. I do think that the larger your ticket price, the larger your, you know, average contract value, the more likely a human could be helpful. So uh, there are a lot of products though where, you know, we all spend a lot of time, CRMs, um, you know, whatever, you name it, that you could imagine some really good product-based marketing where, you know, I click on a feature, it's locked. I get a little bit of a video that leads me through. You like literally never have to talk to a human and you upgrade that feature, you know, on a case-by-case basis. There's really good ways to engineer that in. Huge fan of software, you know, product-based selling to a certain point. I also think that there are not a lot of people that just self-serve and click a button and pay, you know, thousands of dollars. So all about ticket price, all about the value added there. And let's face it, you know, look at major companies that are, you know, trying to shift to this product-based marketing. You, you almost always end up with a talk to sales in one way, you know, or another. So which way are we leading? I think it depends on the cost of that thing, the ticket price. Right, right. Totally with you on this. All right. So uh, my next question is going to be based on what we uh, discussed some time back. When I looked at uh, Ad10, your company, we saw a service where your team takes the calls and closes the deal on behalf of your clients. So does it really make sense for someone to outsource sales as a function? This goes back to our earlier discussion of uh, you know fractional uh, VP of sales. So yeah, I want to know your opinion. Does it really make sense to outsource that as a function itself? It does in a particular scenario that we are designed for. So remember that we primarily work with services companies in and around the technology space. Could be MarTech, could be you know marketing, professional services, uh, implementations, different things like different parts of your sales cycle. So that's our focus. And we're looking for founder-led sales into the mid six figures of those services type companies And now what do they do? They hit that plateau point. There is a space of literally an order of magnitude in that services-based methodology where you really cannot afford to hire and build your own sales organization until you're in that mid seven figures range. So mid sixes to mid sevens, that's 10X. That one gap is all I'm suggesting that this is the ideal service to fit in there. We're super niche, super specific, it makes a hell of a lot of sense in that one spot from the mid sixes to the mid sevens that you need to find a way to scalably build your revenue program that you will hand off to your internal people when you build and grow to that point. If you want to, hey, you can keep us around. You know, if we're killing it for you, no problem. But we are not designed to do that. Everything is built to go on your shelf so that you have the stuff so that you can hire those people. If you were to hire them right now, you would bankrupt yourself. You cannot afford it. So how do you do that on essentially on a contingency basis almost? So what we end up doing is set this retainer sort of value around the place of, if you're going to hire an SDR or a BDR, they can't do it all themselves. Cool. Just pay us that money. Because that's really what, if you look at our pricing, that's what it comes out to. That's the base salary of that SDR or BDR. Cool. We'll do all those things for you and will build the program and will act as your interim or your fractional VP of sales, all the strategy, all the rev ops, all the systems. Now you've got a real way that you can hop 
quickly from that mid six to that mid seven type of thing. So we are a specific point solution for that specific use case. I am not going to tell everybody that that's the right thing for them. I can tell you that it works, you know, for our clients and there seems to be a hunger for it, you know, in our particular niche. Right. I, I love the fact that, you know, you have niched it so very clearly going from six to seven and also the way you have named your company that makes it super specific. Love that so much. All right. So here's the final uh, rapid fire question. Um, this is a scenario question. Okay. You take up the sales for a company and you notice that their CRM is kind of a mess of decaying program attempts. So what are the first two or three things uh, you would do to fix the situation? Make sure they turned on the bulk delete function for my uh, for my people. You know, so <laughs> a lot of times, well, I, I'm not I'm not even kidding, man. Well, like a lot of times, we just go like uh, we don't actually delete a bunch of stuff, but we will we will almost always go. We're kind of big HubSpot fans, so we work primarily in the HubSpot land. Uh, just at the scale we're at, it's the right tool. But we will literally go into workflows. We'll go into templates, sequences. Uh, deal flows, the whole thing. And we make, you know, archived or literally like quote unquote deprecated folders and we turn them all off and we dump them all in there. And, you know, the whole point is like, let's clean out the closets and the drawers. Almost always we walk into these situations where, you know, it's just like a bunch of half-baked stuff was tried by marketing consultant X or, you know, the sales guy we had last year who's not here anymore and we just go like, all right, sweep the deck, you know, let's kind of start this stuff over again. Hey, and if some of that stuff is working, awesome, you know, keep it. It's very rarely working. So um, yes, we have to play CRM janitor like a lot <laughs> and um, that's okay. You know, like I don't expect, I mean, think how many product iterations people go through or, you know, what you learn along the way of just selling and developing your stuff. Like we, we get it. You know, this has to be lean in, in exactly the same way as everything else. What got you here won't get you there. It's, it's, it's a totally different business in the 10X that we're talking about. Like, I mean, you got where you are. And like, I, I tell every founder, like, they're like, oh, you know, I, I suck at sales or, you know, my programs aren't good or, you know, our marketing is blah, blah. Like they, they notice all the things that are wrong because, you know, like founders are hard on themselves. And I just said, like, just stop and breathe and think for a second. Like, did you like. Did, have you honored yourself that you have gotten to the mid six digits of annual revenue with a company that you built? Because that's huge. And a lot of people haven't done that. So let's celebrate that. Now, do you want to make another leap, which is really a totally different company? Every, every order of magnitude is a totally different company. So let's start now and rebuild and build the thing that will get you to, you know, 5 million, whatever, something around there. And I'll be the first to tell you at that point, you're going to have to do it again. Like what got you there won't get you to the next level, 50 million, you know? So these are just like standard orders of, of evolution. And, uh, and it's okay to have to figure out how to, you know, throw stuff away and, and start over. I'm smiling all the way when you answered this because uh, I started my career in sales and uh, then moved into marketing. So in, in some of the initial companies that I worked in, I used to spend about like 30 to 40 minutes every day at the end of the day, uh, just cleaning up CRM. So <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from. Man, CRM hygiene is huge. And and I'm like, you know what? I'll be the first. I'm going to admit it right here on your show. I was just in my own CRM and I was like, dude, what a mess. Like I'm going to have to spend like five hours cleaning up the records that I put in there, you know? So we're awesome at doing this for people, but 
like is is the natural order of entropy happening in our own business? You know, absolutely. It takes an incredible amount of discipline and CRM hygiene sucks for everybody. You know, <laughs> it's why paying somebody like us to do it is probably better than pretending to do it yourself because you probably won't do it and then it'll be a mess and then you'll have to pay somebody like us anyway. Right, right, totally. All right, so we are towards the end of our show today. So before we let you go, uh, one of the key things that we always ask our guests is to share a parting message if they have one. So yeah, go for it. So you're a marketer and and I'm a sales guy and I think that you'll totally relate to this. And, And if I had to focus on any one thing that I think has been really, really, there's two things that have been super valuable. First of all, organize, work with marketing, work with your delivery folks and organize everything you sell into packages that are pretty strict, you know? So I I really believe that like you ought to have maybe three packages and what you offer should be clearly delineated in those packages. If you find some things you're not sure around the edges, you make add-ons, they have specific values, you lock in specific prices, just doing that effort and making sure you're charging the right amount of, of money for that will improve your sales. We see it every time. We're honestly able to just packaging and getting away from custom scope of work on everything. You could probably get like 30% more money out of your uh, ACV. So that's one. And the next thing is like procedurally working between sales and marketing because we're able to capture all of the sales calls and we, we literally spend the time you can, yes, you can use some transcription and different things. And, you know, you can make that a little better, like a tool like Otter or whatever. But we spend the time and go through and say, like, what questions were asked, what objections were asked, write them all down, sort them all out, work together with marketing and say, we believe these are the top things that are going to be asked on every sales call because we have the data. Now, marketing, will you please use those as content prompts? Will you produce content and sales enablement materials that pre-answer those questions. And now let's work together and produce what we call a pre-call sequence. So somebody comes down our funnel, they book a call with sales. Before they get to that call, we want to have dripped them a sequence. HubSpot uses the word sequence. It's still like a drip where those three emails have gone out with the top three things that everybody wants to know when they get on a call. Now I've, I've pre-educated the buyer. Some will self-select out because they know it's not a fit. And when they get to the call, they're already a better fit. They're already better educated. And when they talk to your sales folks, your sales folks don't have to spend that time on one-to-one education because your marketing team already did the one-to-many. It's a much better leverage on the time and the educational content rather than having your salespeople have to pitch that stuff during and after the call where you already lost the momentum. Just doing this, we see that the number of, and the quantity of one call closes can be increased just by that exercise. Big fans of a one call close because once you let somebody off the call, you're probably never gonna hear from them again. You're gonna have to send them a bunch of emails. You know, it's, it's don't use your sales team as just like a warming mechanism, use them as a closing mechanism. So number one tip that we have seen people make a lot more money with. Love this. I, I totally, uh, you know, I'm with you on this because as as a marketing person, one of my biggest gripes has been that um, content marketers never speak to sales folks and you exactly spoke to that. So beautiful. And for all the value that you have given in today's podcast, you know, if people want to connect with you, what is the best place to find you? 
Absolutely. Uh, so there's some fun stuff. I am a host of the uh, Leaders of B2B podcast, leadersofb2b.com, where you can check out a bunch of episodes with all kinds of B2B advice. So that's fun. Uh, we have a B2B founders group, networking group that we get together every other Tuesday and we just share tips and tricks and you know, support each other developing the business. Lots of fun. Bring your coffee, bring your lunch. Uh, that's called the expert community. You can find out about that. It's totally free. That's on ad one zero. That's ADD numeral one Z-E-R-O dot C-O. And I'm David Ledge, Ledgerwood on LinkedIn. I welcome anybody to reach out you know, at any time, that's the best place to find me. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, sharing so much of value in today's episode. And for the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us. And uh, until the next episode, thank you from Yag and take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback thoughts and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you. 